Attention all authors. Page Publishing is looking for authors. Have you written a book and want to get it published? Page Publishing will get your book into bookstores and for sale online at Apple iTunes and other outlets. They handle all aspects of the publishing process for you. Printing, cover art, publicity, copyright, and editing. Call 800-292-8137 now for your free author submission kit. That's 800-292-8137 for your free author submission kit. I'm Roxanne Cody, and welcome to Just the Right Book, where a podcast for curious, enthusiastic, and engaged readers. Our job is to help you discover new books in all genres and give you unique insights into your favorite authors, and then, of course, keep you up to date with what's going on in the literary world. People are more willing to talk about sex than money, and they are certainly more willing to plan for having sex than they are to plan for having enough money to retire. That, coupled with how much to have and when do you need it, creates the ideal fertile ground for New York Times correspondent John Schwartz's new book, This is the Year I Put My Financial Life in Order. John's willingness to share his family's financial foibles and his path through financial planning is a gift to the rest of us. John, welcome to Just the Right Book. Well, thanks. It's great to be with you. Well, uh, so I love the book. Now, just by way of disclosure, I've been a bookseller for 30 years, but before that, I was an accountant for 20. So I come at this book um, somewhere between semi-knowledgeable and a classic example of the shoemaker going shoeless. (laughs) But what got you started on this uh, journey? Well, fear. Um, mm. I had gotten to my late, you know, mid to late fifties, and right. I didn't know whether the money I'd been putting away was going to be enough for retirement. I I had been smart enough to start saving money when I got my first real job, and to sort of keep that going. But I had no sense at all whether the amount I was saving was going to lead to a retirement in comfort or or poverty. And um, I'd never looked at that, and I realized that I was far enough away from any possible retirement to maybe do something about it mm. if I started now in my 50s. I mean, you know, there's there's still, I expect to be around for a while still. And to find out if I was doomed, I didn't think I was doomed, but I thought I was going to change course. I needed to do it quickly. And so finally, my worry about where I was going overpowered the kind of fretfulness that kept me from looking because I just didn't like thinking about money. Yeah. So I was going to ask you that over these years that you had been working, did you in the back of your mind somehow figure you were okay? Or was it sort of a constant tug of worry? It was a constant tug of worry when, you know, when I could spare the time to think about it. Mm. You know, like a lot of people, I've got a demanding job. I've got a family, three kids. We're putting the kids through college. Uh, There's really not time to breathe, much less, you know, for all those years, put together a comprehensive look at, at our finances. I did what a lot of people do. I put some money away and hoped that it would be enough. And I didn't pay that much attention to what sort of investments I was making. I had selected some mutual funds when I was in my 20s and, and let it go at that. So what I, if it was, was going to be bad, it was really time to know. 
And, uh, and along with that, there were other things that I hadn't looked at, and these were all sort of creeping up on me. The fact that I was in my mid-50s and didn't have a will yet. Mm. And three was kids. Finally, and with three kids, exactly. And this mm. was, you know, this, this goes from being a, a worry in the back of your mind to being an overwhelming, it's really time to do this. And so I embarked on the book um, really as an excuse to do things I should have done a long time before. You know, as the title says, um, to get my financial life in order. And that, that's what I was trying to do, to put my financial life in order and then write about that process in a way that maybe other people could see that they could take it on themselves. It's not that hard. Well, it isn't. It isn't that hard. One of the things that um, I read is that you assigned this project to yourself as if you were a reporter reporting on it as well as experiencing it. That's right. Because I because. I'm not very good at thinking about myself, but I'm very good at executing on an assignment and getting things done if there's if there's a deadline. So what was step one? Well, step one was really looking at my retirement funds. You know, we all we all need to prepare in some way for retirement. And classically, there were three legs to the retirement stool. There was uh, if you were lucky enough to work for a company that provided pensions, there was your pension. If you had been putting away money in an IRA or a 401k uh, retirement fund, then you had to assess that. Where does that stand? And then you've got Social Security, which is still around. Um, And so the first step was to use one of those retirement calculators that almost every financial website has. Since most of my savings are in Vanguard, I went to the Vanguard site and used theirs um, and sit down. You know, the, the, the guy I talked to at Vanguard said, it's really a 45-minute questionnaire, and then you can see where you stand. Well, that turned out not to be true. Yeah, it's probably not. a 45-minute questionnaire <laughs> for people who know a lot already. But if you're somebody who's been avoiding big questions, then having to answer them takes you time. The first question was, when do you expect to retire? Well, I had never really thought about that. Or die. And then, right, and another question (laughs) is, how long do you expect to live? Well, wait a damn minute. You know, that's just, that's that's a very frightening question. And the answer is not easy to figure out, except that you, at some point you say to yourself, I'm going to plug in a number. It should be an intelligent number. You look at your family. My father is ninety, going to be ninety-two mm. in uh, in July, and he's going pretty good. My mother is eighty-six. Um, I've probably got a lot of years left. You know, I smoked for less time than Dad did. I have tried to eat better, and I've been more consistent in my exercise habits. I should expect to live as long as he has, barring you know that school bus that passes me a little too close when I'm running up the hill by my house. Right. And and John, if it takes me out, then I'm gone. One of the things that I thought about as I read about you getting started is like all those questions that you're talking about. When do I want to retire? When do I think I'm going to die? How much do I need? How much income do I need when I retire? So is your suggestion that you just put a reasonable stake in the ground? That's exactly right. For this first exercise, what you need to do is pick some reasonable numbers. Like, I like my work. I would like to still be working at 70. I don't see not wanting to work because I find my job fulfilling. Other people want to get out as fast as they can. So so use that thought process to come up with a number, and then you can change the number later. You can go through the process again. But there was no sense in my being so intimidated by this questionnaire that I Mm. didn't finish it, that I didn't even do that. And so 
And so you get, you know, you, you, you rock through this set of numbers and you get an answer. Now you get that answer and yours preliminarily said you look okay, but you could have anywhere from 800,000 to 4 million or. That's exactly right. Which is, you know, not a tremendous comfort except for the fact that if things go well, things will go well. If things go badly, things will go badly. Oh, great. I'm so glad I did all this. Now, John, you're in a, and you talk about this in the book, that you have been uh, both more planful than the title might suggest and um, smart enough to stay employed at a company like New York Times that does have a pension for almost 20 years. But what does the average American look like? I mean, even the fact that you started saving in your 20s must put you in a pretty small cohort. Well, that's right. Our savings rate as a nation is pretty poor. Our retirement savings rate, the the, uh, the percentage of people who are actually putting stuff away the, the, the degree to which that amount is adequate, um, we're in bad shape. As a, not just as a people, not just as the American people, but as human animals, we're just not very good at planning. Mm. We're not very good at taking the steps to address long-term issues. It's why we don't necessarily eat right. It's why, um, as a culture, we haven't really done that much to address climate change or and, and why companies look to the quarterly returns instead of the long-term growth of their company, right? I mean, this is a human trait, mm. uh, and, and, and we don't like to deal with these things. But in my 20s, I was lucky enough to get a job and get a promotion early on that gave me an income bump of more than 20%. And I looked at that, and it was about the time I was able to save for a 401k. And I realized that if I simply put 10% of that away, if put 10% of my income away, I wouldn't notice it was gone because I was getting a raise that would that that was larger than that. Right. And that was the beginning. And then I did my very best to forget that that was happening, um, and sort of made it made it a lockbox in my life. Uh, I have told my children that, okay, I don't see, you know, you're not getting any 10% raises or anything like that right now, but you could start your 401, you could start your IRA or 401k with 1% of your income, Mm. which doesn't feel like much. And when you sign up for it, you can tell that, that algorithm, the, the program that's withdrawing the money from your paycheck every every uh, every week or two weeks to bump it up by another percent the next year mm. and another percent the next year. And in time, you will be saving a reasonable amount of money. And over a long period of time, and especially if uh, if the stock market you know, continues its general tendency to rise over time, then you're going to be in pretty good shape. And that's and, and that's and that's sort of the, the, these are this is simple advice, but we're not very good at following it. Well, one of the things that I thought about, you you relay a story of a colleague of yours who you commuted back and forth from uh, Maplewood, New Jersey. And he, who was very planful very early on and almost sounded cocky in the book, but maybe I was just imposing my own opinion, said to you, I don't know how you're going to make it. And and one of the things that made me think about is exactly what you're saying. So there's the concept of short-term pain for long-term gain. But 
Another way to think about it is it's actually a way, it might be long-term pain. In other words, you might always be having to take money that otherwise might be available for a vacation or a nicer home or eating out or, or some material thing you covet in the interest of your old age long-term benefit. That can be part of the calculation that we make. And it's not eliminating everything. It's not squeezing. Uh, it's not tightening the belt so much that you scream. But it is paying attention to what you spend your money on, right? And and how extravagant that vacation has to be. We're you know, Gene and I are not very big on vacations ourselves, but we always made sure we sent the kids to summer camp, which was expensive. Let's face it. Sure. But um, but we wanted them to develop the kind of independence that comes with uh, with you know going to summer camp and being away from us. And then for us, having the time to ourselves in our house was a very nice vacation. Mm-hmm. So, um, so we just, Gene and I were both pretty cheap. We didn't, we've never done a lot of fancy restaurant meals, but, uh, but you know, these days when I'm going to grill on the weekend, I do buy a nice steak mm-hmm. and, uh, and not just hamburger, you know, right. but then, but then we're using, I, I mean, my, my method, I don't, I don't know if you need to go into this, but you know, my method is to, is to grill a lot of stuff on Sunday that we can keep in the fridge and cut into um, sandwiches and burritos and salads through the week. Mm. Just keep that protein around. And so I'm spending a fair amount of money on Saturday to avoid spending money during the week on other stuff. Yeah. And those those are uh, those, those are the little things, things that we add have up. Done. They do add up, and they keep us from you know they keep us from losing our shirts. We've had very tight times. We've had very difficult times when we just didn't have any money. When uh, we had lost an apartment in New York and we had lost our savings trying to hold on to the thing and there was just not much money for anything. And that that experience shaped the way we do things, mm-hmm. I think, in the in the years since. We Once just, you've seen the abyss. And it was scary. Yeah. Then then um then we tended to be a lot more mindful about the things we buy. And uh, and we sort of do it to each other. I I was looking at Apple Watches when they came out, and Gene said, "Well, why do you want that? What's it going to do for you?" Mm. And you know, my answer as with all Apple purchases is, "It's so pretty, I want it." Yeah, and they know that they know how to make you want it. Yeah, it's a, it's a desire factory. Now, John, it sounds like you and Gene are very aligned financially, because it seems to me that money is a hot button for most couples. And that's something I looked into in the book. I talked to um, financial counselors, that is financial therapists, people who come from the world of couples therapy, but also have a financial background and they have their association. And, uh, and this is a major flashpoint for so many couples they they get together and they're not on the same page when it comes to money and the arguments can be impossible mm. and uh and and you know money as i found out is is tied deeply into our emotions and we use it as a surrogate for a lot of our feelings we talk about people being withholding with their emotions these are money terms we right. just uh and so as you said in the coming into this coming into the interview People would rather talk about sex than money. This mm. is what the this is what the financial therapists told me that it's much easier to talk to people about a sexual affair than a 
financial indiscretion. Wow. Um, they just, money is just so deeply emotionally charged. And then one of these financial therapists was talking to me about, okay, how do you bring people back from that loss of trust when, when someone's been spending money without telling the other, when there's hidden credit cards, when, when there are these, these uh, problems in the marriage? How do you come back from that? And she described the process of slowly rebuilding trust. And I said, this sounds like what you would do with people trying to get past an extramarital affair. Mm. And she said, yeah, it's the same technique. Whoa. So, John, Roughly I don't want to I don't want to run out of time before we talk about just how practical uh, this book is. So I want to I want to lay a little bit of groundwork and then have you take it from there. For one, I do appreciate that because it's not just our story. It's, exactly. It really, is, it really is something people can use. So yeah, I appreciate so, you bringing that up. Right. So what I found is, A, kudos to you about being funny about this as needed, adding levity in exactly uh, the right place. But what you do um, here in the book, and I'd, I'd like you to go over it, you have everything broken down into a chapter uh, by topic, and then you have these great punch lists at the end of each chapter. And then at the very end of the book, you provide a calendar for them to go through a year of putting a financial life in order. And I do think it's quite clear that your reporter used to making complicated subjects accessible because that's very evident in the book. So take us through how you decided to organize it and why you think that approach is most practical for everyone. I wrote the book the way that I take on all large projects. The project of getting my financial life in order was the project of writing the book. It was doing the work in order to be able to write the book. And whenever I take on any big project, the only way to get my brain around it is to divide it into chunks, chunks that I can understand, chunks that I can study up on, and then write out or accomplish. So um, a, an, an 80, 90,000 word book is an impossible task. A series of 5,000 word chapters is an accomplishable task. Mm. That's a long, that's a long article for me. That's the length of the first draft of a lot of, you know, a lot of the pieces I write. It's, it's, um, it is something I'm familiar with. So in the same way that I broke it down into chunks, you know, breaking it into chunks helps people organize their lives as well. So the idea was, okay, let's talk about housing and how you know when you start looking for a house, how to avoid pitfalls. If you're going to get a will, how do you go about doing that? And what does the will accomplish? And why did you need one? Health insurance, life insurance, these are all life's stations. These are all the things that we need to do. And I realized if I could just create these chunks, not only could I write through them, but somebody reading along could say, well, wait a minute, I can do that much. And that's what the punch lists are about, too. It's breaking down the task before you into things that you can accomplish. Because if all you see before you is your life and everything you need to do, you're likely to choke. But if there's steps you can follow, then maybe you can break it down. Maybe you can take on the chunks. Maybe you can get this fear off your shoulders and start mm -hmm. accomplishing things. Have you heard from a lot of people who, uh, the book's been out how long? About th two or three months? Since April. Since April. So yeah. it's been out a couple, it's been out a month and a half. And the, the most common thing I hear from people is that they now feel that they can do these things for themselves. That after reading the book, the, the most valuable thing it's done is to demystify their financial 
planning, that before that they didn't have any idea where to start. It was intimidating. They had all the fretfulness that, I, that I've been talking about. And, um, and once they read it and you know, realized that we had been through a lot of these things, they sort of got a sense, at least from what people have told me, that they could start moving forward themselves. And that's a, that's a, that's a very good feeling to hear something like that from people. Yeah, and, you know, one of the things you say in the book, which I think is exactly right, is the only real secret is there is no secret. If people think there's some, like, magic pill or magic answer, I think what you do is quickly disabuse us of that and say, but no, but there's still manageable steps. That doesn't mean that there's a secret. They're just manageable. That's exactly right. And and what I try to counter in writing this book is the the part of financial journalism that says you're doing it wrong and we've got a secret mm. to, to help you through it. Yeah. <laughs> the get rich quick schemes. Yeah, get rich quick and, and you know, and also to sell you on you know, to sell you insecurity to say you're just doing this wrong and I can fix it if mm. if you pay me. And uh and my point is is much simpler. You can fix this. It's not mysterious. There are there are steps that you can take. It, you know, if, when you're looking at your investments if you're a young person, here's how you go about starting. Here are the here are the kind of funds you should be looking at. Here's what here's why you should ask any financial advisor, any broker that you go to, a lot of questions about um, whether your best interests are on the table and being considered. All of these things, all but but none of it none of it is none of it is uh, witchcraft mm. or or mysterious. It's pretty straightforward. It doesn't mean that it's simple, but you can do it. And and that's why and that's why this book is different from the the books that just want to tell you you're doing everything wrong and you need me. So here's a question that I hear a lot from a lot of people: Is how do you find a financial advisor? Because the current advice is you should not be picking stocks. You should not be paying financial advisors who are charging um, a percent of your investable assets. But which index do you pick? You still It seems to me you still need a financial advisor of some sort. So how do you even go about thinking about that? Well, first of all, none of us is a, you know, unless you're a financial genius, you're probably not a financial genius. And if you're a financial genius, you already know it. Yeah. So we can all use advice. And uh, my my point on Seeking out financial advice is be very careful of people who only want to sell you something. Right. That uh, that um, that that brokers often operate on incentives to sell you this or that. They get more money for pushing you this way than that way, and you really need to push hard and ask people about uh, if you're if you're thinking about them. Well, what's what fees do you get, and why are you why do you think this is uh, is the right way for me to go? Uh, often somebody will say, well, this this instrument, this product is really fantastic. It's an annuity that does this, this, and this. And if you're just starting out, what are you doing finding out about annuities, which, you know, could be a, could be a part of your financial plan later in life once you're more sophisticated. But that's, that's um, what you really need when you're starting out is a series of set it and forget it funds that will grow as you as as you continue to put the money in, mm-hmm. and um, and so I look for um, certified financial planners is what I recommend. Right, people who have a fiduciary obligation to you and nothing and to are, sell and nothing to sell. Uh, I'm kind of a fan of fee only certified financial planners like the the folks in the 
in the uh, in the in the Garrett. I think it's the Garrett Network, right? Mm-hmm. That you know these are people, and I write about them in the book. I go to visit. I, I go to see a broker, you know, various people, and and a uh, and a certified fee only financial planner. And look, you might decide to do it differently. If you've got great recommendations from family and friends, go and do the thing that makes you happy. But starting cold. I was most comfortable with a fee-only certified financial planner. That was the person who I felt would um, probably guide me right because this was a person I didn't end up signing a contract with any of these folks Mm. for purposes of the book. But if I was starting out, if it was a little earlier, if I needed specific advice, I would probably go to this person as opposed to these other people. For one thing, the, the thing that this guy said to me that I just loved was, I only want to get in for a little while. I only want to help you sort things out so that you can manage your own financial affairs. I don't want to be on a monthly retainer with you. Right. right. And boy, did that sound good. Yeah. And, you know, if I, um, based on my experience, the most um, common mistake I've seen people make is exactly what you refer to, that they're not appreciating that a some brokers may have um, commissions on product A versus product B, regard, and they will sell you on product A, whether it's the right one for you or not, because they get a fee and there are hidden fees in that product that you that you don't ne- you have to ask a lot of questions or read a shocking amount of documents to discern that. That's right. And it doesn't mean they're bad people. No. These, some of these, and that, you know, and the investments might be reasonably okay, but it's not for you. It's for, for that, you know, it's, it's for that person. It's part of the company's drive to get this thing out there. Or it's and, for you to understand, yeah. at least. And, and so you've got to ask a lot of questions and you've got to know what you're buying and, and why this person thinks you should buy it. Because frankly, if you're in your 20s and 30s, for example, then you should be in index funds, these funds that reflect the broader markets, which tend to, over time, rise. And you're not trying to beat the market, and you're not trying to pick individual stocks, and you're not trying to be a hot dog. And even, you know, those have even outperformed in a very consistent way the the good managed funds, mm-hmm. the funds where, where, uh, where you know, analysts are picking, the, the, the representatives of the company are picking baskets of stock for, you know, that, that, that offer higher growth or this or that. Um, the thing about these index funds is because you don't have that stock picker working in the office, you're saving money. And the fees on those funds tend to be very low because it's not just how much you make, it's how much gets taken out before it goes into your account. I'm just saying that, you know, that and, and if you can get an advisor who wants to keep things simple for you, then you've probably found somebody good. Mm. Is it ever too late? I mean, you hear a lot of people saying, you know, the damage has been done. I'm 55. I'm 60. I'm 65. Um, but, you know, forget it. At this point, I ought to just give up. Well, if you do, then you're guaranteeing that you won't have anything, <laughs> which is, you know, fine. If, if you want certainty, there's your certainty. Right. But um, but I would recommend... Uh, a crash course of, of belt tightening and putting something away because if you did the math in your head and came out with the answers that I did, which is at 55, I've got at least 20 years left and potentially 40. Wow. Right. Right. I'm 55. My dad is 92. Mm-hmm. Um, and I hope to be earning for at least um, 
well, I'm, you know, I'm saying I would like to keep working until I'm at least 70. If I'm doing that, you know, and here's hoping, right? But um, if I'm doing that, there will be earning capacity through those years. Why wouldn't I be trying to put some of that away? I, even if, even if um, it might be hard, I've got, uh, I've got this many years ahead of me. At the age of 55, the um, the 401k allows me to bump up more, thanks to under federal law, and uh, and. It's not like we have a lot of extra money, but once again, I went in and I added 1% and I told it to bump up by an additional 1% over the next few years. Mm. It just said, you know, this is this is the time to try to end up better. So, John, how has putting your financial life in order improved the quality of your life? Well, it did not put me in a position to take wonderful vacations. Mm. We don't have a ton more money. What we do have is less worry. Right. I the things that were dogging me. How could you not have a will? Well, now I have a will. In fact, now I realize that I need to make some changes in the will because some of the things I did, I've had a discussion with my son. He doesn't want to have done that way. And so, mm-hmm. but, but having that marker on the ground, having done that, relieves that bit of worry. I'm just a very fretful person. <laughs> and, if I can, and, if I can, and if I can drop this one and this one and this one, then my life is better. Yeah, you're making space. In your yeah, brain, in more, your worry I'm brain, just more, yeah, I'm more comfortable in my skin mm. because because I'm I'm not you know I've I've answered some questions again as you said the range of where my retirement funds will get me depending on markets is still very very wide yeah um, but for the most part it sounds like it's going to be probably okay and right. at least I have that much information in front of me I, I'm I. I am an information worker. This is what I do for a living. I ask questions and I type. And I have asked questions. I've gotten answers that I'm pretty comfortable with and I'm ready to move on and also to continue maintaining uh, my financial life, continue to, to keep tune-ups going as I go along. And that just I just feel better about that. So before I ask you the last question, I, I want to make sure our listeners um I'm sure they they get the idea that you've been extremely pragmatic um, about how you put your financial life in order and how they can. And I I can't um, recommend this book more highly as someone who was in the financial world for so long as a very non-magic, not, it's not magical and it doesn't create uh, unnecessary fear. It, to me, it just provides a path to figuring this out and taking steps to put as much security as you can based on how you want to live your life. You know, you could decide, oh, my God, I'm going to start saving half my income, or you could decide, well, I see how much trouble I'm headed for, but I'm still only going to save 5% or 2%. But you'll figure it out. You'll know You'll know after reading this book, if you go through John's uh, process and look at his punch lists and his calendar, I, I think the average person will have a good, a very good sense of where they're at and what they need to do. You can't make them do it, right? <laughs> right. All I'm doing is leading all these horses to water. Exactly. Exactly. So my last question uh, for you, John, is uh, what's the book that changed your life? Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. 
you know, I'm reading all the time and every book has such an impact on me. If, if, if I were to, you know, I would tell you that early, early on, it was discovering books like A Wrinkle in Time and the Tom Swift books mm-hmm. because I'm pretty old and, but just books of the imagination. Right. Science fiction, which made me think that there was more to the world. And, and that and that stoke this sense of wonder that kids have and which can be extinguished if you don't feed it with with stuff like crap science fiction and good stuff. Uh, I, you know, I, I uh, but more than that, the book that I spent the most time with as a kid was the World Book Encyclopedia. Mm, yeah. I just I, I, you know, my parents bought a ones? World Book and a Britannica. Yeah. And uh, and I would and I would pull a volume down and read an article at random and then yeah. I would pull a volume down and read another article at random. And it just made me think that you could learn things. Yeah. It was and it was all here. Yeah. <laughs> it's right that's there. Not true. Yeah. <laughs> but so much is right there. And it just led me to think, you know, I want to know more things. And that led me to get a liberal arts degree in college because it was all about learning how to learn. Right. You know, I think about, I can picture the World Book Encyclopedias, which was a challenge for my parents financially uh, at the time. I picture them on that bookcase. They were on the bottom shelf, and I did exactly the same thing. I would. I was a little bit more fanatical. I went A to Z, but... Did you really? I, oh, boy. I did, but, you know, to me, that was just, as as you're saying the most delicious thing to realize I could just access all of that and learn something. Yeah. And, and okay. I thought I could learn everything in the world. I was wrong. <laughs> but what I did learn was that I could learn all kinds of things. And what do I do now for a living, but learn all kinds of things. Mm. What great preparation for yeah. taking on a job in which you try to explain things to other people than to have been exposed to this enormous sweep of knowledge that was accessible. Yeah. So we've been talking with John Schwartz, who is the author of the book, This is the Year I Put My Financial Life in Order. And John, I really want to thank you for um, all your journalism, but particularly for this book, I think in, in these times where people are nervous for a whole host of reasons, giving them a an opportunity to take care of one of their worries in in kind of a controlled way is, as I said at the outset of our conversation, is a gift. So uh, thank you for joining us on uh, Just the Right Book, and I look forward to reading more of your pieces. All right. Well, thank you so much. It's been delightful. Thanks again to John Schwartz for talking with us about his book, This is the Year I Put My Financial Life in Order. That book is available now. And next week on the Just the Right Book podcast, I will have a ton of book recommendations for you just in time for your July 4th beach reading, which means you might not be able to have as many people for your barbecue because you're going to want to be reading. And so also keep in mind that I think any kind of book can be a beach read, not necessarily just Happy, cheery books, but all sorts of books. It's just a good time to read. We love hearing your feedback, what you recommend, and what you're reading. Please continue to send us your notes. You can email us at info at justtherightbookpodcast.com or message us on our Facebook page. Just the Right Book Podcast is produced by Collisions, the podcast division of CRN International. Our original new music was created by Mark Berman. Our producer is Christina Torres, and our audio engineer is Pat Keogh. Thank you all so much for listening.